All right. So I have I have shared with a couple of folks that we're going to try to, I'm going to try really hard. I was even trying to get an extra cup of coffee to keep me moving and um, to get, get through this section of the reintroduction of the book of Romans for those of that are just joining us. Um, and I, I was telling uh, Grady this morning that, that I feel like I'm in a a little bit of a, you've probably been, a little bit of an exegetical spin, loop, because as I'll, as I'll share in the study, I, I, uh, I used Lagos, which is a digital library, um, and um, there's this wonderful resource called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource. It's, if you've not, if you love to dig deep, uh, and, and work your way through the cross-references that is really the beautiful breadcrumb trail that Tina and I enjoy, you know, it's, it's, uh, but I was sharing that th this, these three chapters of Roman uh, have over 662 cross-references, most of them back into the Old Testament, those three chapters. So when you read those three chapters and, and you're hearing this voice <laughs> from the past, it is 660 true references right back to the Old Testament, particularly the promises that God has made to Israel. And this beautiful display that Paul wants to lift up above everything else, which is this wonderful, promise-keeping Savior. And how beautifully clear this book makes us understand that it is not in any way because of us, and if anything, it is in despite of us <laughs> in all of our wayward ways. It is to his glory and grace alone. Um, It really, yeah, isn't that something? And, and just come beautifully, beautifully cohesive, right? And, and that's really where I encourage you to get a good concordance. Um, and if you can get a hard copy of the, the treasury or the new treasury of scripture, um, it, it's gonna allow you to land in a passage and begin to just look through the entirety of the Bible uh, as it relates to every single word that is in that passage. And it's just wonderful. We'll, we'll have our morning studies, and, and I'll ask my bride, where are you? And she says, well, I know where I started. <laughs> I don't know how I got here, but it was just that beautiful little breadcrumb of, of seeking these cross-references that reinforce the very text that you're in. And I do feel like I'm in a little bit of that spin. I think you'll see it this morning. Um, I would like to just uh, kind of settle our hearts and, and call to mind uh, just the devastation in Mississippi and Alabama. I don't know if any of you saw that storm or you saw the meteorologist that was in mid mid-tracking of that storm, stop and ask the Lord to help those people. He literally, did you see that? Stopped cold because he saw the magnitude of this storm. And if you've seen the videos, I think about the Baptist builders that are headed down there right now. There's nothing to rebuild. I mean, it is literally just obliterated, isn't it? It's, it's awful. So let, let's just, with a heavy heart, call to mind all those people. And uh, um, would you like to pray for us this morning? That'd be wonderful. Heavenly Father, we come to you to summarize your greatness and your majesty and your holiness. Lord, we know that you are sovereign over all things. And Lord, we constantly remind ourselves. 
Um, so I, it's, it's funny, my, my little, uh, tablet that I'm, uh, used for my studies, uh, I, James Montgomery Boyce, who I've talked about a lot, um, has, uh, really a, a, a man who was used just so mightily because he was so wonderfully educated, um, from a secular perspective, um, just a, a brilliant mind and an education that is almost uncomprehendable today, just the accomplishment, study, uh, but then a theologian and, and just a man faithful to the Word of God uh, in so beautiful of ways. Um, shared a story in, in, as I was reading about th this text in Romans 9, 10, 11, that of all the pulpits that he's been in, there was one that stands out in his mind more than any other. And it was a, kind of a, it was somewhere in Europe. And he said there was a plaque only visible to him that the congregation had put in that pulpit. And it said, sir we would see Jesus. That was it. And it kind of hit him just as he was preparing to preach. This is not about anybody up here or anybody out. This is about Jesus. And what the triune God has purposed through Jesus to bring about this glorious redemption of a people utterly undeserving of that redemption. And any time we move away from that in any way at all, we begin to steal from the glory of God in the redemption of humanity through Jesus Christ, right? And Spurgeon, yesterday, if you ever listened to Spurgeon preach on Psalm 23, if you haven't, I would highly recommend it. It's on YouTube. Um, it's not Spurgeon, of course, but uh, he said something in that, as I was listening to it yesterday, taking care of our sheep, <laughs> that, that if you don't see the master from the pastor, you better watch out. And doesn't your mind just race through so many men who stand in the pulpit to lift themselves up and not the master? and how that is the very means by which the congregation sweeps themselves away because they heap up those that will tell them what they want to hear. Do you see that in Paul's writing? That immediately makes me think about the absolute devastation of Israel. Blind guides of the blind, and they will all go into the same ditch. It's fearful, right? So let's lift up the Lord. He, this is his. <laughs> um, 
We ended last week uh, really, really on Romans 10, 12 uh, through 15, but particularly on verse 13 was the emphasis where Paul says in verse 13 of Romans 10, 12, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which we saw was a direct quote from Joel 2.32, which reads, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. An exact cross-reference to the book of Joel right there in Romans 10. So there's just one of those 662 references. And my point is, Paul's mind was absolutely saturated in Saul's scriptures. <laughs> the man before Paul was so saturated in the scriptures, but he did not have, as, as, uh, as we, we realize, he did not have the cornerstone that made it all make sense. And he just couldn't get out of his way and was illumined by the Holy Spirit, to your point, to just let all these things that Saul treasured flow out of him with a proper understanding of Christ and the centrality of Christ in it all. And it is in this book that Paul makes his case, as we've said all along, do not forget about Israel. It is at the very center of the regeneration of this creation, as we'll see this morning. So I wanted to just kind of bring us back to that, that point. I want to build out a little bit more. So we're going to be in Jeremiah, we're going to be in Hosea, um, and we'll be in Romans. So have your fingers ready or your ears trusting. Um, but most of you know the book of Hosea. It, it can be a difficult book to read. Um, but it is, as John David said yesterday, when I, it's a word picture. He said that last week in the sermon on marriage. It is a word picture of a husband who was faithful, not to the minimum, as John David preached last week, but to the absolute mercy of his bride and so much more. That's what that whole book is about. Right? It's a word picture of Christ's redemptive work. So I first want to go to Jeremiah, and I want to build that thought out a little bit. And let's look at it in Jeremiah 3, 6 through 10, the, this weeping prophet. And in verse 6 of chapter 3, he says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? the faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. And we know from what John David taught us last week about marriage and divorce that that was never, ever God's intention for marriage. but it was because of sin. Sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly. Man, I think about this nation. how lightly we look at the perversions of God's precious creation. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. 
idols. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. Just a pretender. False worship. Shallow worship. Man-centered worship. Self-centered worship. Right? A lot of what's going up this morning in lots and lots of places. Hosea 2.16 builds this out, but in such a way that we see that there comes a time where God does not leave her in that state. And this is really what Paul is driving towards in Romans, right? Look at Hosea 2, 16 through 20, which again is another one of those passages of the 662. So we've only got 660 more to go after this one. And in that day, Hosea 2, verse 16, declares the Lord. So pay attention to in that day, very particular day, right? Declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. What do you take away from that? Let me help you. Remember this? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see how personal God takes false worship? We may think in our false worship, we're worshiping Baal, but we are trying to, we are trying to offer worship to Baal when God is seeing himself as the only God, and yet we have supplanted him with what is not a God, and he takes that very personal. And you can see it again right here, right? And again, remember that Paul's mind is absolutely saturated with these texts. That's, that's why... There, there are 662 cross-references in these just three chapters alone, right? So in a sense, Paul is, Paul is through the work of the Holy Spirit in him to pen the book of Romans. He is now progressively learning from the Old Testament text where the Holy Spirit is bringing it all together in a very wonderful way regarding Israel, right? And this is what Hosea precedes the rest of the book with. Verse 16, And in that day declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of Baal from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I found this, this passage just sent me sideways. This is one of those passages where you just kind of got to stop and say, what does that mean? Verse 18. And I will make for them a covenant on, here comes that particularity again, that day with the, look at this, beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. Now, do, do those three categories remind you of anything? Remember a passage called, that goes like this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And listen to verse 23. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What is he saying? Think about those two passages. What did we do in Rome? What is the consequence of being given over by God to pursue the desires of our heart? We run straight to the things he created. Then in the garden, he said to subordinate to you. 
Adam's first charter. And we lifted them up in place of the God who created them in the form of animals and everything you could imagine. And that is generation after generation after generation of humanity. But yet in that day, he's going to make a covenant with all of those and he's going to put them in their proper place, which is going to be all part of the fulfillment that we'll see, the fruition of the millennial reign. What was always created to be in the garden for Adam and Eve, the second Adam is going to bring about in the millennial reign. And he's going to make a covenant with all of the creation which comes right out of Romans 8. For the whole creation groans for the day this comes about. Right? Subjected to futility, not because of what they did, but because of what we did. Right? Just, just amazing. So to just finish up, and that's really what Hosea speaks to after this covenant is made. And I will abolish the bow, back to Hosea 2, 18 the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, allusions to Psalm 23, and I will betroth you to me forever. So now he's taking back the wife that he divorced. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. Very important. Because where does our righteousness come from? Christ. Where is their righteousness going to come from? Christ, which means they have to believe in what? Christ for this to be fulfilled. And in the state of Hosea's time, they were not and nor have they to this very day. You, you see how meticulous the Holy Spirit is with these scriptures? If we will be diligent with them, right? It's just wondrous. In righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Four things. Righteousness, justice, steadfast love, and mercy. There's a sermon series right there, James. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And here it is. All the way back in Hosea's day, the Holy Spirit was showing them, and you shall know the Lord, right? You may recall where we ended last time, and I'm going to take you back there. Go back with me to Isaiah 53, verse 5. And, of course, Isaiah and Isaiah 53, 54, 59, and 60 just ooze out of Romans 9, 10, and 11, as well as the rest of the book. But I had mentioned that Isaiah 53, if you read it carefully, and I hope you never read it the same if you haven't, what you have is, is a time when Israel... In the future, so stick with me here. This is a time that is projected by the Holy Spirit of the Israel in the future. And in that future, they're going to be looking back beyond where we are today, all the way back to the cross. And out of their heart is going to come this exclaim, Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6. But he was pierced. For our transgression. There's the looking back. Because to this day, the Jew does not see it that way at all. For them to confess that Jesus was pierced for their sin, they would have to declare their life accomplishment of self-righteousness the same pile of dung that Paul did. And only the Holy Spirit can reverse that type of thinking, right? But here they are. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That is atonement. 
and with his wounds we are healed. They are looking back all the way to the cross from a future state that is the very end of the tribulation period when Israel will be converted. Isn't that beautiful? How faithful the Lord is with these truths. Here comes the confession. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. They understand what is one of the central doctrines of the book of Romans, which is always the way God has saved. Justification by faith and the righteousness that flows from Christ to you not out of you. Yeah. Uh, quick question. So we have all these promises to Israel, all of these references to the future Israel looking back, um, the church and Israel being accepted. How did these promises manifest themselves as it relates to the church? Wonderful question. Can you make sure I answer that at the last of this study no no no. it's it's in this study Paul makes it very clear wonderful question you all heard the question right and it's basically I think it's it's exactly Paul's intention for this book he's saying yes so the question was how do you harmonize an Israel that's going to be saved the church age and the tribulation age how do you harmonize all that together, particularly with all this language that says Israel has been divorced? Well, specifically, yeah. if, these, if Paul is speaking of Israel, yeah. then I as a Gentile believer, yeah. Yeah. I mean, get over it, Paul. Yeah. yeah. So what does the church think about this all Israel thing? Precisely why I think Paul wrote this letter. Perfectly, perfect setup. Okay, now, so I'm, I'm going to get to that on the very next section. And we're doing pretty good on time. I hate to even say that. But Isaiah 54, verse 4 through 8, I'm going to keep building this out. Because what you have is this progression now in Isaiah that begins with this beautiful passage in Isaiah 53. So I'm going to skip along. Go to Isaiah 54, verse 4 through 8. And you read, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth. Now we're building on that point, right? And the reproach of the widowhood you will remember no more. That's that tear that gets wiped away, right? Half of it's full of the joy of standing before the Lord. Half of it has to be filled with the realization of how many ways we fell so far short of such a glorious Lord. But that tear gets wiped away. And it's nothing but pure joy and worship from that point on, right? And just look at the intimacy of this language. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, for you will remember no more. Verse 5, for your maker is your husband. So wait a minute, I thought, I thought there was a divorce here, right? Well, this is the faithful bringing back together the husband and the bride, faithful, right? We talked about Romans 1 and the emphasis it's actually putting on the beauty of the marriage covenant and why it is so precious to God. Well, here it is. This is supremely precious to God. And he's given us, particularly the believers, the marriage covenant, to put this beautiful faithfulness to one another on display. Right? Which is precisely John David's point last week. Why would we want to determine the minimum requirements for our marriage and not just let it build and let it be the beautiful gift that God has caused it to be, right? And decreed it to be. For your maker is your husband, verse 5. 
The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he has called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she was cast off, says your God, for a brief moment, says the Lord, I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with the everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And I think that helps us because Romans 1 gives us a description of God's abandoning wrath one generation after another generation, after another generation. And Israel was no different than that. But there is going to come a generation of Israel that God is going to call to himself efficaciously. And he won't abandon them to themselves. And that is much of the language that is being referred to. So part of this, this is Jeff, your question, how do you harmonize all this? It's exactly what was in my head, right? Because one of the passages that popped into my head is Luke 19, 41 through 44. And this is where I think a lot of the historical Presbyterian eschatological view comes from, which is there's no future for Israel, right? Because look at Luke 19, 1 through, uh, Luke 19 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 19, 41, verse 42, saying, Would that you, even you, look at the responsibility of Israel at this point, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And it is not because it wasn't in the scriptures, was it? But now they are hidden from your eyes. Notice the, pro the sequence there, the progression. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's the same generational <laughs> decrees that are running generation after generation. And this is this generation of Israel that God gave over. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another and you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Fearful. And as Ryan pointed out, I think, last week, God didn't have to do anything. It's God's active hedge of protection that he does. When we say, no thanks, God, he just lets us go to the violent and monstrous world we live in. And this is one picture of that treatment of that generation of Israel that Paul has ever eminent in his mind. That was one of the points we've made the last two weeks. This, this destruction of Jerusalem and his beloved Israel is absolutely fearfully top of mind. Would it not be? Right? Would it not? This is like our nation is under this curse, and it's coming. Already the rumblings between Rome and Israel and the destruction of small cities of this city, and Paul knows that there's coming a day based on what the Lord has said right here, that Israel is going to get absolutely massacred. That's why he says, don't forget about the Jews. But then there's this sneaky little passage in Matthew 23, verse 37. Very similar to one we just read. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children 
together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And here comes our responsibility. And you were not willing. That's the although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. See, your house is left to you desolate. He's reaffirming what he's just said in Luke's passage. But look at verse 39, which I think is often overlooked and not pondered. Because this uh, comes right out of the great Hallel, the very last of the Psalms they read every year as they ponder the Messiah to this day. And it is also quoted by Paul in Romans 11. Verse 39 of Matthew 23 says, For I tell you, saith the Lord here, you will not see me again until you say, and here's part of it, Jeff, that just seals this future. Tell you say, Israel, tell you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Isaiah 53. So, quick question, and I don't mean to... Yeah, no, 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 please. So, so if Jesus is referencing the destruction of Jerusalem... Mm -hmm. And he is. And is, mm -hmm. which happens in 70... And history knows it, yeah. And, and he says, this generation shall not pass away. Yes. Meaning... Not necessarily. You got to look at what he means by this generation. This, right. This, but, he's, but he says throughout, you, you, your children, yep. you, you, yep. you, yep. you who are listening. Yep. It, was that not an applicable prophecy for them? It, it has been taken by many. Jonathan Edwards, not the least of which. That, that the, right there, they were condemned, right? But the, the question you have to ask is who is the you? And who is the generation? And how do you now harmonize the massive amount of ink that has been spilled throughout all of Scripture that says there is a beautiful future for Israel that goes beyond this point, which is exactly where I think Paul's going with this text. So look how he shapes that. Because that is, and just bringing up a point, there, there are some of the brightest theologians you, we've ever known, the Jonathan Edwards of the world, who were absolutely convinced that all hope for Israel was done, it's the church, and that's it. Right? Look at what Paul says in Romans 11, 11 through 12. So now we're getting right into the heart of, of the line of questioning here. What about Israel, right? Verse 11, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So Paul had the same question. And I guarantee you, this Gentile church, mixed with Jews and Gentile, mature and immature, had the same question. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. There's a big, strong no way from Paul. Rather, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, pause and understand what that means. Because Jesus, all the way throughout his ministry, about two-thirds of his life in ministry, it was, it's now, it's now, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is here. And then he says, leave them alone. And now you begin to see this extended view. Because Israel has rejected their kingdom. Because they have rejected their king. And it opens this next, at this point, you could argue, what was decreed but not yet revealed, which is the church. And out of the blue, right here, comes the church. But why the church? And how did, back to the original question, what about Israel? What about all these promises? Does the church in the natural, historical, reformed Presbyterian view would hold that all the promises made to Israel now belong to the church because all the curses belong to Israel? 
Very common argument, right? To try to square this with the way Paul unpacks this. It's just stunning, really. By no means, rather through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now look at this. So as to make Israel jealous. Now if that passage doesn't stop you cold, I don't know what would. What does that mean? What does that mean? And he's using the term Gentile all the way through here. What, what is going to make Israel jealous that the Gentiles are doing? It's the beautiful relationship they have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the end of the tribulation period. When what's happening to all the tribulation saints that are being saved in droves, they're being murdered as quick as they proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Israel is watching this. And they're seeing the depth of the love. And in many ways, <laughs> they should be seeing the Stephen being stoned. They're, they're going to become jealous, says Paul. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, so there's one, Israel, Israel rejected the kingdom during the time of Christ. Now comes the Gentiles. Now comes the church. Look at what he says. How much more will their full inclusion mean? This is the bride, groom, the husband who by every possible biblical basis could have divorced Israel and left her for ruin. But he remained faithful. And that's what he's building to. Keep going with me. Skip down to verse 25. Oh, no, we've got to read 15. Okay, you read, you read it. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Mm -hmm. So something massive happens here, right? And Paul is alluding to it. But what's amazing is Paul has in his face the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus prophesied. He sees the, the, the hostility that is brewing. He knows the Lord has prophesied it, but yet he still sees something far beyond that. Isaiah 53, where they're looking back. No, 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 verse 25, thank you. Lest you be, so here comes the warning to the Gentile. So th this to me, Jeff, is, a, is kind of a whoa, right? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial, note the word partial, hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And you can ponder that in lots of different ways. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And that is a direct cross-reference to the continuation of Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 59, verse 20 and 21, where it starts with, and a redeemer will come to Zion. This is Isaiah 59, 20, exact cross-reference from Paul's text. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob 
who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth forevermore. And then if you read Isaiah 60, it is one of the most beautiful chapters, the entire chapter, which is this glorious new beginning that Israel has with the Lord. And then that it caused Paul to just explode into this beautiful doxology, Romans 11, 28, 29. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. That is the promise-keeping God. And the anchor for this whole future redemption. I promised the forefathers, and I keep my promises. Yeah. For the gifts... And the calling of God are irrevocable. And what I would say when you look at that text is if, if God abandons this future Israel, then he is not a God who's going to keep his promise. And what other promises is he not going to keep? That's where you would go. If revocable doesn't mean, or irrevocable doesn't mean irrevocable, right? So, to wind it down, you see Paul in verse 33. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Paul says you can't even fathom what God is doing here. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And he just can't get over it. So I want to read to you, I mentioned kind of circa 1800, James Stifler, who taught the entire book 20 times, 14 of which from the original languages, and wrote the most beautiful commentary. And this is what he believes is the intention of this book. And I think it'll resonate with what we've studied the last several days. He says, Paul, as he's writing this book or preparing in his mind, is standing in thought on the platform of Judaism. His outlook is from Jerusalem, where every one of his missionary journeys terminated. He sees the danger, a danger, alas, long ago realized that a gospel of grace, now listen to his thinking, a, that a gospel of grace that reduces the Jew for salvation to the level of the Gentile in blotting out Judaism as a means of approach to God may blot out the Jew. Remember he's saying, what a, don't forget about Israel. What does it mean that the very beginning he reminds these Romans that this salvation in Christ is first to the Jew? Outside the present grace, Jew and Gentile are kept wholly separate from beginning to end. Let the Gentiles not boast, if you read 11 very carefully, 10 and 11. We are warned not to be arrogant not to boast, not to lose sight that we have been brought into the redemptive plan of God to fulfill the purpose of making Israel jealous to bring her back to him. That's how we're being used. Or should be. <laughs> Let the Gentile not boast. This is his day that the Jews and that of the Jews is coming. Paul must insist that no man, Jew or Gentile, can now or ever hereafter be saved except 
by faith. It's always that same justification by faith. This was good for all, but hard for the Jew to accept. God's plan is to bring him to an acceptance of it, that he may have mercy on him as he has had on the Gentile. And meanwhile, let the Gentile remember not only that this is coming, but that his own ultimate triumph. Now, pay attention to what he's saying. Meanwhile, let the Gentile remember not only that this is coming, but that his own, the Gentile, ultimate triumph cannot come until mercy till the Jew appears. We cannot reach the fulfillment or the fruition of God's redemptive plan into the millennial reign until the Jews come to faith in Christ. And we are the vessel who God has purposed to make that Israel jealous of our love for the Lord. That's what Paul is revealing and Mr. Stifler captures. And I'll just close here. Yeah. Some of you will know exactly the breadth of the ministry that is communicating the notion that we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Now, I draw that attention because think about what we've just studied and think about how directly counter that is to everything God is doing. And there are thousands of people who are just captive by that ministry as just one example. When Paul, I am sure, would say, may it never be. I referenced 662 passages from the Old Testament, most of them. You mean to tell me I'm supposed to unhitch myself from the future of Israel and the Israel that I love? And just to hear it from Paul's mouth, Romans 15.8 says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy upon them to include them not only in his redemptive plan, but to be the means by which he would bring Israel back and set up the millennial reign, which is centered, as David Kemp has taught us, in Jerusalem, restored. And we can just all say praise be to the Lord. Okay. So next week we're going to walk through some of the key words in this book, some of the key doctrines, and then we'll move into our normal study of unpacking Romans 2 on. Maybe we can go a little deeper. That'd be great. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>